Well, it's a, a joy to be with you today on this Father's Day and Juneteenth. Today, we're going to be talking about legacy, about the legacy you leave. And it's interesting to me how the idea of legacy feels vastly different in its relevance at different stages in our lives. I'm getting old. It's happening and I can't make it stop. Now, now someone is thinking, Chad, you don't know nothing about old. Eh, okay, I understand I'm not as old as some. I will not point fingers or name names, but I have thoroughly and squarely landed in the middle-aged zone. And I am reminded of that fact every Monday evening when I play on our church softball team. Now, I have never been a particularly great softball player. I stumbled into the volleyball world when I had the realization in ninth grade that there was no way I would make the freshman baseball team. And the baseball mediocrity of my childhood has translated into softball mediocrity in adulthood. But my softball mediocrity in adulthood has degraded into aging softball mediocrity. Everything I do is slower and slower than it once was. No matter what base I am on, I am a genuine threat to be thrown out from anywhere on the field. I've reached the point in my life when I'm standing on first base, having swung as hard as I can to hit a bloop single over the third baseman's head, and I'm standing on first base thinking to myself, do I want the next batter to get a hit? <laughs> or to simply pop up to end the inning? Because if she gets a hit, I will have to run, run to second base, maybe even further, and that's a long way away. And not only am I slower and less interested in running, but I genuinely, authentically, profoundly, I hurt every week. I tweak my hamstring in the first game of the year, and I re-aggravate it every game. I re-aggravate it every morning getting out of bed. I re-aggravate it sneezing. I re-aggravate it merely thinking thoughts about moving. I'm getting old. And I hear it on good authority that it doesn't get any easier from here. So it's from that vantage point of middle-agedness that I will be sharing this message today about legacy in the middle of our sermon series, In My Generation. Last week, Pastor Aaron gave us a framework for how the generations can serve each other well, calling the younger generations to honor the older and calling the older generations to invest in the younger. And it's the second part of that equation which will frame our time together today as we consider how the older generations can invest in the younger to leave a legacy. Now, rather than looking at a, a single scripture about legacy, we're going to be looking at a biblical relationship which offers a beautiful framework for what it looks like to leave a significant, enduring, God-honoring legacy for the next generation. The generational handoff we see from Moses to Joshua. We'll take a, a quick journey through their relationship in Exodus and the Numbers, then Deuteronomy, what I call a tour of the Torah. A, a Torah, the Torah, and see if we might glean some insight into some good ways to leave the sort of legacy that God desires for each one of us to leave. So let's begin with a passage of scripture where we meet Joshua for the very first time in the Bible. This is in Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles or smartphones if you'd like. It'll be on the screens as well. Here's what we read in Exodus 17, starting in verse 8 when Joshua appears on the scene for the first time. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded. 
and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage, but whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up, so Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. So here's an expression of legacy that we see in this story, what we'll call an element of legacy leaving. The first element of legacy leaving is instruction. There's an element of leaving a legacy that involves instruction, direction. The word here in Exodus 17, 9 is command. Moses commanded Joshua to do this thing. And then in verse 10, Joshua did what Moses had commanded. And then Moses did the motions to YMCA for the rest of the day with some help from Aaron and Hur. And then in verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek. A piece of this puzzle uh, of leaving a legacy is allowing experience, knowledge, wisdom, the discernment accrued over the course of a lifetime to become a direct assignment from an elder to a younger. This message is about the prerequisites for an older generation to effectively help the younger generation, so let's not miss a very simple but important nugget in this story. Things worked out well for Joshua because he did what he was told. Young people, those on the receiving end of instruction and direction, maybe kids or, or teens, young leaders, listen to your elders. Sometimes, every once in a while, they know what they're talking about. I was thinking about times when I foolishly ignored the direction of people who knew better than I, and I was drawn back on this Father's Day to a story that gets retold time and again among a group of my childhood friends. In my youth, I had the great pleasure of going once or twice each year on a father-son weekend canoeing trip on a river somewhere in Pennsylvania. We've got a picture here of, uh, of this crew, circa 1989 or so. I, I managed to find this picture, and yes, Yes, children, that is what people looked like in the late 80s. And I should note that my wife's comment upon seeing this picture was, wow, you look awful. She's not wrong, folks. And some of you are trying to figure out who is the hideous creature that is me in that picture. Yeah, red shorts, UNC hat. It's bad news. It's bad news. Anyway, here's the deal. We canoed on the west branch of the Susquehanna, the Juniata River, Pine Creek, the Red Shannon. Some of my fondest memories of my childhood happened on those canoe trips. And some of my less than stellar memories also happened on those canoe trips. One time, we kids discovered a grove of bamboo growing a few hundred feet from our campsite. Now, some of you may know why that was such an awesome discovery. What happens when you put bamboo in a fire? It explodes. Yeah, it explodes between the joints of each stalk. The pressure builds up and it sets off like a firecracker. And to a group of 10 to 12-year-old boys, this was literally the most fantastic discovery we could have ever imagined, short of a nest of like baby pterodactyls or something. When I told my dad about our plans to go foraging for bamboo, he said to me, just don't get yourself all muddy. Uh, because this particular bamboo grove was growing in a very wet marshy kind of area seemed like a reasonable expectation. Well, with incredible gusto and zero discretion, I went stomping into that swamp with reckless abandon, only realizing when it was too late that I was sinking lower and lower and lower. And as exciting as exploding bamboo was, 
Well, yeah, disappearing into quicksand was equally terrifying. And I quickly realized that I was stuck and sinking and making it worse by thrashing about. And as, of course, the idiot who went first, can you imagine how my friends reacted to seeing me stuck in mud up to my waist? Much laughter ensued. Eventually, my father was called in to assist with my extraction from the swamp. And after some clever strategy from the dads, yeah, they, they pulled me out. It was successful. Sans one shoe. If any of you happen to be active outdoors people and are traipsing around a bamboo grove along a central Pennsylvania riverbed and stumble upon a size 11 boys Avia high top sneaker circa 1989, please return it. I'd like it back. Now, a story that began with my ignoring my father's simple instruction, don't get yourself all muddy, didn't end there. After my quicksand extraction, my dad told me to go over to the little stream that was meandering down the hillside beside our campsite and flowing into the river below so that I could begin demudifying myself. His instruction was simple, don't get yourself all wet. It occurred to me, brilliant 11-year-old that I was, that the little stream where my dad had directed me had such a weak flow of water that I could expedite the demodification by instead standing along the very edge of the river. More water, quicker cleanup, everybody wins. Well, you know what happened. As I was standing on a rock alongside the edge of the river, I slipped and fell in and was swept downstream. In a lifetime filled with sheepish moments, I'm hard pressed to remember one more sheepish than sloshing up the bank of the river back to face my father soaked to the bone with freezing water from head to toe, still caked in mud from my waist down, of course with the little limp that comes along with only wearing one shoe. My dad had given me two instructions, don't get all muddy, don't get all wet, and I managed to discover new levels of muddy and wet that completely contradicted his simple instructions on that memorable day. There's a fundamental and basic element in legacy living and in legacy receiving, which boils down to simple command. Do this thing, avoid this thing, and it will go well with you. Kids, young people, I want you to hear this. If you ignore the thoughtful instruction of those who know a little bit more than you do, you will end up caked in mud and soaking wet and missing a shoe. Now, of course, is someone necessarily right about something, about everything, just because they're older? Well, no. Is every instruction given from the older generation to the younger generation correct? No. And how do we sort that out? Well, that's an entirely separate sermon series about discernment and discretion and hearing from God and running our options through the grid of scripture and using our minds that God gave us. I'm suggesting that Exodus 17 shows an example where a command is the mechanism through which the older generation can invest in the younger generation. It's definitely not the only way, and it's often not the best way. Indeed, there's a lot more to legacy leaving than simply an older generation telling a younger generation what to do. But instruction is a piece of it, which we ignore or reject to our own detriment. Now let's keep unpacking some other elements of legacy leaving. Now we're gonna move along to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verses 12 and 13. Here's what we read. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. Stay there and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out 
And Moses climbed up the mountain of God. Now, some of you know what is about to happen in this story. God had already spoken the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. But when Moses climbed up that mountain, God gave a lot more instruction than just the Ten Commandments. Gave him instructions about the Ark of the Covenant and building the tabernacle and the priestly garments and various altars, culminating in giving Moses the famous stone tablets upon which God carved the Ten Commandments into stone, written with the finger of God, which Moses smashed into bits when he got mad, rightfully so, because the people were impatient for him to return from the mountain, and they started worshiping idols and and drinking coffee and other expressions of wretchedness. And then God reprinted another copy of the stone tablets. It's a beautiful, convoluted story with implications for the entire future of the people of Israel and beyond. But tucked in there, did you notice what Joshua was doing? Back there in Exodus 24, Moses and Joshua set out. Clearly, this is Moses' story at this point. Moses is the key player. But it's striking to me that he was intentional to bring along Joshua, seemingly primarily as an observer. That's our next element of legacy leaving, demonstration. There's something so powerful when when we're talking about investing in those who are younger with having the forethought and intentionality to appreciate what can come with simple demonstration, showing what to do, providing the opportunity to watch and learn. It's a powerful part of leaving a legacy, inviting those coming along behind us to simply be with us so they can get a sense of what it is that lies ahead for them when the baton has been passed. We see this aspect of Joshua's role in coming alongside and and learning from Moses repeated just a few chapters forward in Exodus 33. Here's what we read starting in in Exodus 33, uh, verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrances of their own tents. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside, As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Again, there is this sense that Joshua's job was simply to hang around. We don't read here that he was actively participating in the conversation that God was having with Moses face to face, but Joshua was lingering, was present, and would even remain behind. I don't know, I kind of imagine him just looking around, taking it in, basking in the reality of what his older, wiser predecessor was doing and receiving from the Lord. This principle of demonstration and observation is actually quite common in much of the leadership literature of our day. I've heard this in conferences and read this in books from both Christian and secular sources. There's something quite important that happens when we allow those coming behind us to simply be with us and learn from watching. But as common as it may be to teach the value of this, it's not intuitive to me. On either end of the generational handoff, I have a tendency to feel like I'll engage with whatever whatever my elder saints are doing when I have something to contribute. And I have a tendency to want to invite my younger cohorts into the mix when I think I need them to do something. But I think I've often missed opportunities by not sufficiently valuing the gift of presence as we see in Joshua's early hangings around with Moses. Now acknowledging that I don't prioritize this often enough, I can think of specific moments when I have been invited along just sort of for the ride, 
that have been really helpful. A number of years ago, Ron Webb, one of our elders and a former staff member, was, was visiting a mutual friend of ours, Peggy Emler, at a retirement community where she was living. And he mentioned that he was taking communion with him to offer to her and invited me to come along. And I remember thinking, ah, communion to go. I've never done that, but I ought to learn how to do it. So Ron and I took a little trip and Ron led us in communion and prayer and it was sweet. And I contributed nothing. But in being there, Ron was not only blessing someone who was not able to get to Sunday worship services anymore, but was investing in me by inviting me to come along. So simple, so powerful. This is a, a relatively simple means of investing down that I think we would do well to embrace and practice, maybe more than we typically do, as we see the example of Moses and Joshua. Continuing to lean into their example, let's look at another anecdote. Now we'll be moving well forward into Numbers 27. Here's what we read in Numbers 27. We'll be starting in verse 12. It's a longer passage. Numbers 27, starting in verse 12. One day the Lord said to Moses, climb one of the mountains east of the river and look out over the land I've given the people of Israel. After you've seen it, you will die like your brother Aaron, for you both rebelled against my instructions in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please appoint a new man as leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle so the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord replied, Take Joshua, son of Nun, who has the spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. Present him to Eleazar, the priest before the whole community, and publicly commission him to lead the people. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He presented Joshua to Eleazar, the priest, and the whole community. Moses laid his hands on him and commissioned him to lead the people just as the Lord had commanded through Moses. So in this story, as the baton is being passed from one generation to the next, God is clear in, in commanding a specific element of Moses leaving a legacy to Joshua. This element is that we'll call blessing. There's something beautiful and powerful and even supernatural that happens when an older generation lays hands on a younger generation and invites the Spirit of God to commission them to, to take up the mantle of the work of God and to simply lift them into His hands, to be led by the Spirit, to accomplish whatever God has in store for them. We do this well here. I, I really think we do. I mean, the child dedications this morning were an act of this nature. We have a strong history of building acts of commissioning into the very fabric of our corporate life together, at least in these very public settings. I, I suspect we'll do it in a few weeks when we send our, our team of young people to the Life Conference. Look at this picture from our building expansion dedication and celebration service about four and a half years ago when we had some of our longest standing members lay hands on the church staff, families, and, and leaders and pray God's blessing into the next season of ministry. Now, there are a few things that strike me in looking at that picture. There's some folks who've left our church since that time, and, and I miss those folks. I grieve their absence. But I also notice that there are three of our senior saints in that picture who have died in these four and a half years. And while I continue to, continue to grieve those losses, I also celebrate that those dear friends left a legacy here among those of us who remain behind. All of us, all of us who are part of this church family, have received their legacy in many ways, but specifically through this act of commissioning that they participated in those years ago, right here in this space, following in the footsteps of Moses 
inviting God to lead in and through the next generation. I believe he has done that and continues to do that. What a gift that those friends have left for us. And this spirit of blessing and commissioning is not merely a, a public act. There's a tremendous gift of blessing that happens more privately as well. I, I think that this act which God invited Moses to initiate on behalf of Joshua was actually a reflection of the ongoing internal sense of blessing and commissioning and development that Moses had been actively pursuing for years on behalf of his assistant Joshua. There are prayer warriors in this church who regularly pray for every prayer request which comes through our prayer chain. I just got a call this past week from my dear friend Dick Straw asking for an update on a prayer request that had been emailed out to the prayer chain months ago. He and Mabel and their friends at the retirement community where they live were laboring in prayer for the next generation. And when Esther Wakeley or Jane Crandall or Barb Gaynor tell me that they pray for me and for my family and for my kids, I am so richly blessed. What a powerful and subtle and behind the scenes way for the older generations to bless and commission and empower and invite God's move on behalf of the younger generations through the gift of, of prayer. For those of you who serve in that way, thank you. But we're not done yet. We'll jump forward in the story of Moses and Joshua to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. Here's what we read in the opening verses of Deuteronomy 31. Immediately after Moses had given some marching orders to the people of Israel for them to, to process him and follow after his pending departure from them. Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 1. When Moses had finished giving these instructions to all the people of Israel, he said, I am now 120 years old and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has told me you will not cross the Jordan River, but the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy the nations living there and you will take possession of their land. Joshua will lead you across the river just as the Lord promised. The Lord will destroy the nations living in the land just as he destroyed Sihon and Og and the kings of the Amorites. The Lord will hand over to you the people who live there and you must deal with them as I have commanded you. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Then Moses called for Joshua and as all Israel watched, he said to him, be strong and courageous for you will lead these people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors he would give them. You are the one who will divide it among them as their grants of land. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And what was the final message that Moses offered to Joshua here? It's a word of encouragement. A reminder that so long as Joshua follows the Lord, he has no need to worry or be anxious. Moses essentially said, Joshua, you've got this. You're gonna be great, exactly what the people need because God's got this and he's gonna be great. So go get him, kid, for the glory of God. Now, I haven't yet been asked to be part of a biblical translation team, so you won't find my paraphrase in your Bibles, go get them, kid. That's not in any version of the Bible. But I really do think that's the spirit of this word of encouragement from Moses to Joshua. An elder statesman investing down to breathe life and hope into his protege, the next generation. That's the element of legacy leaving here at the end of the life of Moses. Encouragement. Encouragement. If you are among the younger generations, I hope you've had the great gift of receiving a word of encouragement from those who've gone before you to tell you, great job, 
well done, go get them, kid, for, for the glory of God. On a public role like I have as a pastor here, one of the fringe benefits of the job is that people get to see and hear at least some portion of the work that I do. And that means that there are some built-in opportunities to, for folks to share a word of encouragement, to look for times when a, a kind message of gratitude might be a, a blessing and a gift. One of my dear friends and mentors, Harry West, is an encourager of the highest caliber. He sends me regular emails to offer an encouragement about a sermon or a ministry event or whatever aspect of my ministry he has observed. And every one of those notes is a gift to me. Now, to be clear, not every interaction I have with Harry is a word of encouragement. As needed, he occasionally offers a word of correction or a suggestion for improvement. For instance, he has said over the years, Chad, would you please slow down when you preach? Harry, I'm trying. I'm trying. I just get so excited with all of the words and the saying of all of the words. But I don't mind Harry offering me the critique that my pace is a barrier for some and that I would help folks if I were to dial it back. He's earned the right to offer correction and direction because a decade filled with words of encouragement lets me know that he is for me. He is an advocate for me. He wants me to succeed. He cares about me fulfilling God's purpose to use me for his purposes. That's a gift of immeasurable significance in my life, that Harry invests the time and the energy and the thoughtfulness and the intentionality to be an encourager in my life and in the life of many others as well. Harry has chosen for this season of his life when he's no longer in the many positions of leadership and authority that he once held, to leverage his platform and his influence to build up and invest in and encourage the next generation. And I know I'm not the only recipient of Harry's encouragement. I believe that's the biblical way, the kingdom way, the Jesus way. It's not the standard human way. And I'm grateful for how, how plentiful those people are here in this church because thankfully Harry's not alone. We are blessed with many encouragers from the older generations, some even just a few years ahead of me, from Laurie West and, and Leah Fry and Elaine Savage and, and Judy Fireball and Fred Cannon and, and Pat Alters and Don Sestaro and Eveline Ishler and, and Keith Walker and many, many others who've been a strong and consistent voice of encouragement in my life and in the life of so many others for years. Thanks. It's an important work, the work of encouragement. What a beautiful and profound way to invest in the generations coming along behind. Well, let's just touch on one more piece of the Moses and Joshua story as the final element of legacy leaving. And we'll read this in Deuteronomy 34. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse five. So Moses, the servant of the... <laughs> I'll try that one again. So Moses, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. The Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. The people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Now, I'll be honest, this final point I'm going to offer for your consideration with a little bit of a wink-wink. The final element of legacy leaving is release. Release. The final piece of the legacy being passed from one generation to the next is when the older generation takes his hands off the wheels and says to the younger generation, it's all you now. Now, the wink-wink at the end of Deuteronomy is that Moses fully and completely released his legacy into the hands of Joshua by dying. And I think there's some layers of complexity at the very end of, of the life of Moses there. In many ways, the most iconic, significant leader in the history of humanity until the arrival of Jesus. Is it possible that God knew that as long as Moses lived, the people would be drawn to default back to Moses, to not fully trust Joshua's leadership, to, to keep looking for Moses to chime in with his perspective. I mean, Moses had been told several times by God that he would not enter the promised land as a result of his disobedience. But I can't but wonder if, if he and others thought that he might get to hang out just outside the official border of the promised land and watch what was happening as his people settled in the new land, you know, planning to get periodic TPS reports just to know what was happening. What, what do we know, excuse me, what we do know is that he was strong and healthy at the end of his life, and he died nonetheless. And we do know that in this case, for whatever reason, the release from one generation to the next was complete, and it was absolute at that point. When Moses died, the people mourned, certainly for 30 days. And then they looked to Joshua to take them into the next season of the journey. Now, I'll suggest to you today that if we get this right, we don't need to die to be able to release the work of God into the hands of those who come along behind us. Eventually, that release will be complete in that way. But in the meantime, while we're still here on this earth, we have the ability to open our hands, relinquish control, and watch as the next generation picks up the baton to run the next step in the race. On Father's Day, most of us who have the privilege of being dads can probably acknowledge that one of our ultimate goals and one of our greatest challenges is to release our kids into the world so that they can change that world for the good, to glorify God in everything that they do, to bring the love of Jesus into every sphere and relationship of their lives, to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit every day in their lives. That's the mechanism, release. And the goal, changing the world, and I would suggest that for most of us, fathers and mothers and grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers and coaches and supervisors, that first part is at least somewhat difficult, to release the next generation fully and completely, to be able to figure out for themselves what it all means under the guidance of God. In this entire litany of these elements of legacy leaving, I... I feel like, yeah, I've got the instruction down, Pat. I'm an expert at telling my kids what to do. Demonstration and observation, well, yeah, they see me a lot, so the observation piece is happening whether or not I'm trying. Blessing, sure, I bless my kids. I pray for them and ask for God to embrace them and mold them and form them into exactly who he wants them to be. Encouragement, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find opportunities to give them that word of encouragement when they figure out something, when they demonstrate a spiritual virtue, when they reflect the heart of Jesus but release them completely into his hands? Now that's a sticky wicket. Now my kids are young enough that complete release wouldn't be appropriate yet, right? But that's the trajectory they need to be on to increasingly be free of my control and supervision, increasingly living under the guidance and direction of God with me serving less and less as the intermediary of God's presence in their lives. That's the end game, right? 
we see all of those pieces in the relationship between Moses and Joshua over the course of many years. And at the end of it, Moses was gone. But his legacy endured in the life of Joshua in powerful ways that shaped the future of God's people into all eternity. In whatever way we interact with those younger than us, would our intentional acts of instruction and demonstration and blessing and encouragement allow us in the end to release them well, to release them graciously? As we come to a close, I want to take this example of a legacy well left, and I want to dial it forward a few centuries to the life of Jesus to see if Jesus has anything to say about the Moses model. Did Jesus instruct those who would follow after him? Yeah, he did a fair amount of instruction. See the Sermon on the Mount. Did Jesus demonstrate kingdom living and invite those who would follow after him to observe him? Well, that seems to be a primary purpose of hanging out with the disciples over his three years of ministry, for them to watch and learn from what he was doing. See all four Gospels. Did Jesus bless those who would follow after him? Well, his final words for his disciples at the Last Supper, just before he was betrayed and arrested, was essentially a prayer of blessing. See John 17. Did Jesus encourage those who would follow after him? Well, just before that final prayer for his disciples was a final promise to his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit so that they would do the same things he had done and even greater things. See John 14. Did Jesus release those who would follow after him? Well, he had the audacity as the savior of the world to leave us, goobers like you and me, in charge of his church, responsible to be the keepers and the bearers and the sharers of his good news. He was like, I'm getting out of here so that you can be and become exactly who God created you to be, my witnesses. See Acts 1. I think we can go from here today with the knowledge that Moses offered us a timeless picture of what it means to invest in those who are younger. And Jesus affirmed that picture by doing the exact same things. I'm grateful to be part of a multi-generational church family that's filled with folks who value instruction and demonstration and blessing and encouragement and release. I've seen each of these elements of legacy leaving in action from some of you. And I also know mostly from knowing my own heart that some of these elements can be difficult for any of us to prioritize and value as we consider our responsibility to the next generation. So I wonder if there might be even just one thing for each of us to consider as an area of focus in the coming days or weeks or months or, or years that will, would allow us to be better legacy leavers and better legacy receivers. And none of this is ultimately about an enduring institution or organizational succession. Legacy isn't about credibility or fame or renown or power or control. It's not about having a building named after us or having a Wikipedia page. It's all about making famous the name of Jesus, about growing in community to understand with increasing wisdom over the course of our lifetime the immensity of the gift of being adopted children of God. And then with whatever insight or perspective, or understanding, or, or comfort, or hope we've been given by God, we have the opportunity to share that gift with those who come behind us for his glory and for our joy. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for 
faithful leaders who have gone before us and shown us what it looks like to receive the gift of salvation, to receive the relationship with you, to live in that joy, and then to pass it along to those, to co- to those who come along behind us. We thank you for the example of Moses, the way that he handed off the promise, the burden of responsibility, the leadership to the next generation. We thank you for the clarity that comes when we, when we see Jesus affirming doing those exact same things. Lord, would you stir in us in whatever way you need to stir in us that we might, regardless of where we are in our journey, that we might have someone coming along behind us. Maybe that's just a younger sibling. Maybe that's our children. Maybe that's people that we supervise at work. Maybe that's people that we, we teach or coach, whoever it might be, that we would with intentionality think about how you would have us Again, in light of the splendor of the gift of your love, how we might pass that along to those who come along behind us. That we would lean into instruction or demonstration or blessing or encouragement or release in whatever way you would see fit. That we might see the fruit of your glory born in however many generations come behind us until you return. We thank you that we get to be a part of that journey. We thank you and we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?